Good morning. See some people I've not yet met. I'm glad you're here. Hopefully we can chat afterwards. Welcome to the Crossing Church. We are, uh, we see ourselves as gospel-centered missional communities, uh, which simply means we center ourselves around the gospel, the story throughout the history of all creation of things being broken and being redeemed and restored to the glory of God. And, and we take part in that story. Uh, so often we think about the gospel and we think Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Uh, but we see that as the center point. Uh, and then it goes out from there. Everything before Jesus points to Jesus. Everything from Jesus is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So we center ourselves around the gospel. Christmas is a great time for us to reflect on the life of Jesus, to think about what he's done, what he's accomplished. Um, so we, we celebrate that through Advent, the, the waiting, the coming of our Savior. Um, we see that the, the people of the Old Testament waited for a Messiah. They, that, they were in Advent, and we also are in Advent for the second coming, and we'll talk more about that in the next week's sermon. Um, but we want to see ourselves as people of God on mission for God, and so we live our lives in missional communities, and that is, that is the church, that we are people on mission. We are the church, and what we do on Sunday mornings is we gather and we worship. So if, so if you've not been with us before, that's what we're about. We're here to worship God. We don't want to make it about anything else. We just want to gather, and we want to worship as the people of God, and so we're grateful you're here. And that's what you're joining into. There's much more to the Crossing Church than this Sunday morning time. And so feel free to ask questions afterwards. You can ask anybody. Hopefully they'll know answers. Um, but in the Advent season, we want to talk about what it means to celebrate Jesus. And so what that means is you take a tree from outside. You bring it into your house. Just kidding. Decorate it. That's Christmas though, right? This is the time of year when you drag trees in your house, you put a bunch of stuff on them, and you put presents underneath them, which makes total sense to anyone in the world. And you put lights all over your front yard, different colors, the better. You set up a scene where a baby's in a feeding trough, and there's some people around him, and Santa's off to the side. And then there's also Snoopy or whatever character you enjoy dressed up like Santa. So this is the time of year we celebrate those things. And in our culture, that's totally acceptable, though if we just look at it for face value, it's really weird. But that's totally acceptable, and that's how we celebrate Christmas. And I think there's nothing wrong with those things. I don't think in themselves there's anything wrong with it. But I want to break down some things this morning and just be honest and be real and try to figure out what do we really value most about Christmas? What do we really enjoy the most about Christmas? What brings us joy this time of year? Because we certainly see that there's a lot of joy going around. So what brings us joy this time of year? And I think that we can, as good Christian folks say, it's all about Jesus. And that's what the answer should be. But is it true? Is that true? And so this week, as I prepared this sermon, I really evaluate my heart. Is that true of me? Do I really enjoy most about Christmas? Jesus. And and if I think back through my life, I see, okay, as a kid, it was absolutely, totally about the gifts. As they started appearing under the tree, I got really excited. There's gifts under this tree. Some of them are mine. I got to count to make sure I have more than my siblings. I really want to know what's in that, in that box, what's in that wrapper. There's this longing in me to know what was in there. In fact, there was this hope that whatever was in that box is, was going to bring me joy. So this hope for joy in that box under the tree. So... I was able to wait patiently and never bring it up and 
No, like everyone else, I shook the boxes, felt around. If it wasn't in a box, like, okay, this feels like Ninja Turtle. I think this is a Ninja Turtle. You know what I'm talking about, though. And like every day, Mom, can I just open one early? Just one. One gift. Uh, just one. Everyone's asked that question, right? How many of you guys know the hiding place and you went and you looked before it was wrapped? Yes, some honesty. I won't say your name so your parents won't know. But we need this longing for something more. And so Christmas, we see it. It's there. And as a kid, I wanted to know what was in that, what was in that box. Like this, this expecting something that's going to bring me joy was what Christmas was about. And as I got older, and, and now I would say that it may not be so much about this anticipated uh, gift for me, but, but sometimes I, I feel a lot of joy in giving gifts to others. And I, like, I'm just excited to see I got them what they wanted. At my mother-in-law's house, we draw names. Well, we don't really draw names. We, draw, we drew names once, and now it's all rigged. Hypothetically, we draw names. I get Elizabeth every year, somehow. But... Elizabeth, my sister, she is really good to get gifts for because she gets so excited about them. And I know this year when she opens the present that I got her, she's going to smile big. I may get a hug out of it. There's going to be a lot of joy in Elizabeth to get that gift. And it's going to bring me joy to have given her that gift. So still, it's very much about the gifts for me. As a kid, it was like, I want the gift. And as an adult, it's like, I want to give the perfect gift. And that causes a lot of anxiety sometimes. And you parents know better than anybody to get the right gift. Or my kid's going to have a, a stinky Christmas and they're going to be ruined for the rest of their lives. Which isn't true. That's what it feels like. Right? And my wife is not like her sister. And she's the most difficult. And I just don't know what to get her. So if you have any ideas, <laughs> let me know. But, but Christmas has become about that in our culture, about the gifts. And so if I'm honest, and, and probably if you're honest, what we enjoy most about Christmas are the gifts. The getting the gifts, the giving the gifts, whatever it is, it's surrounding these gifts. And there's a lot of other things to enjoy. I'm not saying nothing else is enjoyable. Sleigh rides, if you live where there's sleighs. Uh, Christmas music, this time of year there's special music, there's special food, there's a lot of special things about this time of year, and a lot of it brings us joy. But asking the question, what brings us the most joy, I would have to say, I think it's gifts. Not just the culture, but a lot of Christians make Christmas about the presents. It's just the truth. So you don't have to lie. It's the truth. And we don't want it to be that, but it is. And so then I have to ask the question, is, it, is that a bad thing? Because I think we think that's bad. That's why we lie about it. Is it a bad thing? And, I, and so when I consider whether or not it's a bad thing, I think about how we're actually demonstrating something very, very similar to the very generous God we have. That giving good gifts is very much our Father. He desires for us to enjoy good gifts. He desires for us to enjoy good things. So it's not in itself a bad thing. Gifts, enjoying good gifts and giving good gifts, it's not bad. In fact, it's telling of who we belong to. The, the reason we enjoy it is because of who our creator is. What's the problem? Where, where it becomes a problem is when we make those things ultimate. If it's all about the gift, then we have a problem. 
If, if Christmas becomes all about giving and receiving gifts, if we put all of our hope in what's in the box, then it's completely and totally sinful. And so where, what are we hoping for? What's going to truly bring us joy? And that's where we have to ask tough questions and have honest answers. And, and though it's just like when we were a kid and we don't want to wait for Christmas to get here, God has given us something that will bring lasting joy. Our sinful hearts, our wickedness tells us there's something beyond us and we're searching for it. So we search for it in boxes, we search for it in, in jobs and in people and money and education. We search for it in this longing for a better future. The marriage is going to be it or having kids is going to be it or graduating is going to be it or the, or the job promotion is going to be the solution. It's not in the things and it's not in our future, but there is a greater hope. And, and God has made it a promise. So last week, Jesse talked about this promise that, that this, this need for salvation goes all the way back to the garden. That the celebration of Christmas goes all the way back to the garden because Adam and Eve sinned and they were disciplined by their Creator, but He didn't leave them without hope. There's hope in this promise made by God. And today we're going to talk about how God has kept that promise. And, and that promise is going to satisfy this longing in us. It's going to satisfy us with a lasting joy. And so it's worth celebrating. That's why we celebrate Christmas. There's this thread throughout the Old Testament of prophecy, of this hope, this whispers, these shadows, these hints of redemption, of this one day things being completely restored to how they once were, or even better than they were, of God bringing back His children into the family, and it being completely and totally finished. There's all throughout the Old Testament these small stories are a part of this bigger story, and that's the story of the gospel. And so this morning, we're going to see that our faithful promise-making God has kept His promise. And spoiler alert, it's Jesus. It's always about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. So go with me to Matthew chapter 1. It's going to be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, open it. It's good to read it and have it in your hands. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are called the Gospels because they're the story of good news. It's the story of Jesus. They're all about the life of Jesus. John, we read the first part of John this morning before we worshipped, and it was, it was very uh, poetic, and it was very uh, symbolic, and that's how John writes. And so it doesn't say Jesus was born, but it says the Word became flesh. And then Mark skips right over Jesus' Jesus' birth and goes straight into his baptism, into the ministry. But Matthew and Luke both give us a picture of what the birth of Christ looked like. And Matthew is kind of abbreviated. He spent some time going over um, what, what exactly this, this season of life was for the people of God. And then he goes into a Savior came. And then Luke gives us a little more detail. In fact, Luke's very detailed. He goes through lineage first, and then he goes into, okay, this is how it happened. So we're going to read both Matthew and Luke this morning, uh, but kind of as an introduction to the coming of Christ, I want to read Matthew first and pull out a couple of things, and then we'll go into Luke. <clears throat> so Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18. 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the story of salvation being brought to the world. This is the story of the promise being kept. Of prophecies being fulfilled, of these stories, this, this thread, the whispers through the Old Testament, this coming to fruition. This is the Word becoming flesh. This is God becoming man, Jesus. And so the name Jesus it, this was written in Greek. In Greek, it's Iesus. And then that's a transliteration of the Aramaic or Hebrew name for Jesus, which is Yeshua. The reason I tell you that is because knowing Yeshua is his name, it means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. So this person, Jesus, his name literally means the Lord saves. And so Matthew writes, name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then we know Jesus to be Christ. We, it's not his last name. That's who he is. Jesus Christ. Christ is the the Greek word for the Hebrew word that you also probably heard, Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one, the chosen one. So Jesus, Yahweh saves, is the chosen one, the Messiah. And he brings salvation. But there there have been other examples of Messiah-type figures throughout history. Moses was one, David was one. These pictures of uh, deliverance, these pictures of a salvation, but Jesus is the anointed one. He's the chosen one. And more than that, he is Emmanuel, according to the, the prophet Isaiah. That's also quoted in this Matthew passage. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And thankfully, Matthew tells us exactly what that means. Emmanuel means God with us. Not only is he Symbolic of Yahweh saving. And not only is he bringing the salvation, not only is he the anointed and chosen one to do so, but more than that, he's God with us. God has become man to save us. There's great significance there. And we're going to talk about it in more detail at the end. But we have to see that the very salvation of the Lord has come to be with us. He was the promised one of God. Now the promise has been kept. The chosen salvation is God with us. The coming rescue, the answer to the promise is God himself, the Lord Jesus, our salvation. But it's done in a very interesting way. And in a way prophecy has predicted, but in a way that still is surprising. So let's go to Luke chapter 2. Some details of this birth. 
in Luke. There's a lot more to this story that was kind of just glanced over by Matthew, but it's, so it's kind of long. We're going to read from verse 1 to 21, and it's an incredibly familiar passage, and so I want to challenge you this morning to forget it, like you never heard this story before. I know you saw Charlie Brown do it. I know that it's on every movie this time of year. The church is doing a reenactment of it. It's all over people's lawns. I know that you know the story. It's sitting on your mantle at home. We could go on. You know the story of the birth of Christ, the nativity, the birth of the Lord. But I want you to think of it fresh. Like hear these words. This is the word of God. There's a reason Luke recorded this. It has purpose. It has meaning beyond a reenactment. I want you to feel it. I want you to feel like we're there and we're watching it happen. This actually happened. It's history. It actually happened. Feel this. The Word of God is truth. The Word of God is real. Know that God became man and this is how it happened. And I'm going to stop a couple times as I read through it and bring some clarity and some context to it. So bear with me and let's read through it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, it's a hyperbole, not all the world, but the Roman world, which is to Rome. That's all that mattered. So all the world would be registered. And this was the first registration of Quirinius when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So right now we have Joseph and Mary, who were at the time living in Nazareth, which is now their hometown, but he's from Bethlehem. He's from the lineage of David. And so it says they're traveling up to Bethlehem. And that's because Bethlehem is near Jerusalem. So if you, if you know anything about the Middle East, we got the Dead Sea. And then above the Dead Sea, connected by a river, is the Sea of Galilee. And this region of Galilee is a lower elevation than Jerusalem, which is down by the, the Dead Sea. And so they're traveling south, but they're going uphill. So think, donkey. Pregnant woman, very pregnant woman, like about to give birth any minute. On the donkey with whatever they're bringing with them. Joseph leading them uphill all the way, about 70 miles. So let's think 70 miles from where we are to Minden. It's like 72 miles. I looked up this morning. Or from here to Vicksburg, which is like 68 miles. So a couple miles either way. That's a long way either way. All the way to Bethlehem with his pregnant wife. And, and it says they're betrothed, but it's his wife in every way except it's not consummated. It's, they're not, they're not, she has to be a virgin in order to fulfill, fulfill the prophecy. And so this is the commitment he's made. Um, so they're traveling to Bethlehem for this actual historical event. Now there's some argument about what exact, when exactly this happened. And they're, okay, Quirinius was governor of Syria. What, is that, what exactly does that mean? And so there's some debates. The hardcore atheists have done the research to know that, okay, these things don't line up. Luke wasn't actually there. So maybe he recorded some things just off of memory. It doesn't really matter because it's not the point. 
It actually happened. He, put, he puts in there this historical event so you know, okay, this is happening, but also it points to the sovereignty of God bringing these things together. That they have to be in Bethlehem. So let's use the government to get them to Bethlehem. God's in control of these things. Jesus wasn't born at 1 AD, which would have been good because that's when we guessed. All the years would be thrown off if we changed it now, so we're not changing it. But it was somewhere between BC, 4 BC and AD 6. You can add years to the end. If that matters to you, it was somewhere in there. I think it's important to know these, that we can see things this flexible because hard-nosed people want to argue things and it ultimately doesn't matter. The details like that don't matter. What does matter is perfectly the prophecies fulfilled. Perfectly. Without flaw, totally fulfilled. Alright. So there's no place for them to sleep in the end. Instead, they go back to a, a manger behind an inn somewhere in Bethlehem. Let's continue reading. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there, was an, there with the angel was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So we have the shepherds in a field near Bethlehem. And an angel shows up. So shepherds, not high class shepherds in a field, stinking like sheep, watching over their sheep, just doing their job, an angel shows up. And he says to them, the, the Savior is born. The Savior, Christ the Lord, is born in Bethlehem. Which is scary for an angel to show up in a field when you're just doing your job and say something so absurd. And then not only did that angel show up and say that, but a multitude of hosts filled the heavens. The glory of God shined down on these shepherds, just tending their sheep, minding their business. And they're singing out glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then they go away. And the shepherds are like, what do we do now? There's no hesitation here. They say, let's go see what they're talking about. And they make haste. They get up. They leave their sheep behind. Because you can't just bring sheep through Bethlehem. Assumption, I know. But they probably left the sheep behind. Shepherds don't do that, by the way. And they rush into Bethlehem to find this Savior because angels just proclaimed His birth. And take note, they didn't go, the angels didn't go to the, the, the royal people in the city. They didn't go to the government. They didn't go to the powerful people of the world. They went to these shepherds in a field, just tending their sheep. And when they saw it, they were amazed. 
And when they saw it, they made known the, the saying that they had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard in wonder at the shep- what the shepherds told them. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So this birth, not only does it fulfill perfectly the prophecy of the coming Messiah, the promise that had been made, but it also tells us much more about who our God is, what he's willing to do for us to know him. And, and it, it's it's a sermon on its own to talk about the prophecy, so we're not going to go depth into prophecy. But there's something of extraordinary significance that happens in this story. Because for some 400 years, more or less, the people of God have been without the voice of the Lord. He has spoken to them through prophets all throughout history. And then this blank page between the New Testament and the Old Testament is silence. I don't know if that's why they put it in there, but you can just write on there, silence. God just stops speaking to his people. There's nothing. Like they don't know anything. They're not hearing anything. And so what happens is they start doing what people do. Let's just make it up as we go. And they establish these very much political things. And they're, and they're adding these rules and regulations to their belief systems. And they're trying to figure out what do we do now? We're not hearing from the voice of the Lord. And so we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and other sects and different belief systems and all connected under this umbrella of Judaism, but they're, they're twisted and seeing things wrongly and, and it's become very corrupt. And, and, then, the, and then there's the, the peasants and the people who aren't a part of this elite club and they develop their own groups and they just get angry about stuff. And there's these zealots that, that want to buck the system and they want to fight against things. And the, the people of God are without direction. They're without hope. And then... An angel shows up to some shepherds and announces the Savior's born. And they go and they see what's going on. And later the prophet John comes, John the Baptist, and he prophesies of who exactly this Jesus is to the rest of the world. But, but out of nowhere, out of silence, now 400 years at least is a long time. Like America is, I think next July, it'll be a... 250, 260, 240, 240 years old. Math is hard to do on the spot. I got it though. Because Jared was like, nobody saw him. I didn't have to tell you that. 240 years is how old our country is. That's from the signing. So there was some time before that if you want to add that in. But that's 240 years, how much has our country changed? Yeah, we have technology, communications faster and all that. But still, a lot changes in a short amount of time. So we're talking 400 years. That's a very long time. So, in the midst of the silence, a Savior is born, but in, in a very peculiar way. Jesus isn't born into royalty. He's not a part of this politically powerful family. He's not born into the government so that He can go up in ranks and take over. He's not, he's not born into any powerful, influential family at all, not to a great nation, not to a great race. He's born to a peasant girl. And, and 
an unknown virgin peasant girl from a town that no one cares about. And Nazareth, we find out later when, when people make fun of Nazareth, like what good could come from Nazareth? Nazareth is like backwoods, hick town, outside of towns that almost matter. It's like, okay, so I'm born in Monroe, behind that, that hotel that's down 165 in this little shack where they store the tools. All right? And I'm the savior of the world. Don't take that and cut that snippet out. And Kendrick said he's the savior of the world. I was talking about Jesus. Okay. I got to be careful. Okay. So you get this picture. Jesus, the Messiah, savior, is taking over nothing as a baby in a manger in a barn. What? Who is scared of that baby? Who thinks that's the king? Who looks at that, that infant totally dependent on his mom and thinks, that's the savior of the world? No one does. I have a baby, I know. I'm not intimidated by him at all. And there's purpose in that. That God, all-powerful, would come in such a way. There's great purpose in that. He comes humbly, and He continues to show us all throughout, all throughout the New Testament that God will elevate the lowly and the humble. That's why He goes to shepherds. He elevates the lowly and the humble. Because it's all about Him. It's not about us or how much we can prove. Or There's no status that you need. There's no title that you have to have. There's no amount of anything that you need in your life to be worthy. Because God elevates the lowly and the humble. It says, it says that there will be peace among those whom with these please. How is, how is God pleased? Well, He's pleased when you submit yourself to Him. He's not pleased by your accomplishments or what you can do to prove yourself to him. The Pharisees didn't impress Jesus. Instead, he goes to those who are weak. He goes to those who are broken. He goes to those without. And he forgives sins. And that's, that's also significant. So God, in man form, he's truly God and truly man. And we need to talk about that. So that there's people who would argue that Jesus wasn't truly God and they would say things like, well, yeah, the Apostle Paul wrote about him being God, but Jesus never said he was God. And, and true, he doesn't say the words, I am God. But he also doesn't say, I am human. Right? So when we look at the life of Jesus, we see these very strong indicators that he is, in fact, God. And, and so we only looking in the Gospels, like I said, the epistle, the letters of Paul and, and, and the, the book of Acts give a lot of examples of this. But only looking in the Gospels, we see that Jesus is God because he forgives sin, which only God does. We see that in Luke chapter 7, verse 48. We see it in Mark chapter 2, and it's elsewhere in Scripture. We also see that he accepts the worship of people. So in Matthew 2, 1 and in Matthew 14, 33 and in Matthew 28, 9, people worship Jesus. Like they bow down and they worship this man. And he doesn't tell them, stop doing that. And we know that angels have people bow down to them. And they're like, get up. What are you doing? You don't worship me. Jesus doesn't do that. He accepts their worship. Why? Because he's God. 
Also, he claims the authority of God. So he may not say, I'm God, but he often says things like the Father and I are one. And he says in Matthew 28, 18, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You only say that if you're God. And what I think is very telling of, of his deity is the fact that he has these guys that hang out with him all the time for, for three years of his life, the whole time he's in ministry, day in, day out. These Jewish men are hanging out with Jesus. And Jews, especially Jews of the first century, would never say that a man can be God. Because other religions would say that. They would elevate men to, to deity because they, they're such great men, so they make them God. The Pharaoh is that way. And then, and then Roman uh, paganism, they elevate men all the time. And that's what Caesar is. And so they elevate men to godhood, but no Jew would ever say a man can be God because their understanding of God is that you die in His presence because you're a sinner. There's no way God and man can become one. There's no way that happens. So they would never accept that Jesus is God. But these men who live day in and day out also worship him. They see this is legit. Jesus is God. They're waiting for a Messiah. And, and he shows up and he says, not only am I going to deliver you, but also I'm the Lord. I'm God. And so this union this God with us, this Emmanuel, is incredibly significant that it could happen. And what's more is Jesus possesses attributes of God that men don't possess. And so God is, has commutable attributes, things we share with him, and there's things that, are, that we don't. One of which is he's eternal. And so I put some scripture on the screen for you. I mean, in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Am. And it's not just an accidental tense change here. He's saying, I am. Like, I am that I am. Like, God, Yahweh, I am the Lord. Not just a God, I'm the God. And before Abraham was, I was. I am God. That's what Jesus is saying. I've always been. So he's eternal. That's only an attribute of God. Also, omnipresence, which means he can be anywhere, everywhere, always, everywhere. Matthew 28 20, he says, after the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's his omnipresence. In Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. So he's pointing to something in the future that shows his omniscience. He knows all things. He does this elsewhere and, and he says Judas you'll betray me and he says Peter you'll deny me he knows things that people don't know because he's on omniscient and then also omnipotence which is his ultimate and great and, and complete power he demonstrates this often no text is there for that one because it's everywhere from the making water to wine to the walking on water to the resurrection Jesus has complete and total control over all creation nothing is over Jesus yet he has become Emmanuel, God with us. He's taken on flesh. He's limited himself and become a man. This is unlike anything we've seen so far in this book. Because when God shows up, typically, it's something that's terrifying. Like it scares the people. Like, I don't want to be a part of that. We see in the book of Job, he shows up in a whirlwind 
All right, so a tornado or hurricane before this man and a, a booming, thunderous voice of correction. That's enough to make any grown man cry, right? This is like standing before a tornado. This is how God shows himself to Job. And he says things like, were you there when I created the world? That's terrifying. That's God's presence to Job. Where we see in Moses, he shows up in a burning bush and this is holy ground. You got to take your shoes off to be here. And he doesn't consume the bush, which is weird enough, but it's on fire. That's the presence of God to Moses, to, the, to Israel. He shows up in, in a pillar of fire and leading them. So not only a tornado, but one made of fire, right? Or, or okay, this one's a little more gentle, a cloud. He shows up in a cloud of glory. But this cloud kills you if you get too close. So still not so great, right? The presence of God showed up like a cloud and rested on the tabernacle. And only one man once a year after going through several ritual things could go into the presence of the Lord. And still, it may go badly. That's the presence of the Lord that we know. But this is starkly different. He shows up as a baby. He condescends and becomes man. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is incredible. And there's many who think that God is this distant, powerful, arrogant being who, who just uses creation to amuse himself or he created us because he needed us or, or he set things in motion and then stepped back and just watched it happen. But that's not our God. Instead, the God of Scripture is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He is actively and intimately invested in his creation. That he would humble himself and become a baby. Like consider what that means for us because the plan since before time began is for God to prove his love to us in the way that he would make a promise of hope and then he himself would be that promise kept. That he would come and he would bring us joy that would last. That God would step down from his throne and become a man. Not only a man, but a man that would serve people. A man that would be with the lowly, the sinners, those who aren't of high status. A man that would give his life so to save the world. That's God, creator of all things, doing that. And what that means is that we understand in theology this union of Christ. Fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. 100% both, but one. It's, it's known as a hypostatic union, which is... It just means he was one person, one personality, but two natures, God and man in one. So it's just as far beyond our grasp as, as understanding the Trinity. It's truly one of the most remarkable things that have ever happened, that God would be incarnate, that God would be man and a baby, vulnerable and dependent. And so Jesus had to grow up. So maybe you've not considered these things. Jesus had to grow up. He had to learn things. He had to develop emotionally and, and, and physically. He had to develop. He had to understand things about the world. He had to take on a physical and emotional pain. He walked and he talked and he felt hunger. He felt thirst. He felt discomfort. He felt emotional pains of rejection and grief. He felt the physical pains of beating. He, he felt every thorn in the crown that they placed on his head, the nails in his hands and feet. He felt those. Just as real as you and I feel pain, Jesus felt pain. 
physically and emotionally. He was a real man. In every way, he was fully, totally, and truly human. Because God was positioning himself to totally empathize with his creation. He positioned himself to totally relate to you. To totally understand you and your pain. To totally get this. So that we wouldn't be without a God who can't understand what we're going through. So that we wouldn't be without a God who doesn't know what it feels like to be abandoned. To be hated. To be spit upon. Our God knows us. He fully and totally knows you. He knows your sin. He knows what it feels like to suffer. And he knows you. He knows your wicked heart. He knows how you constantly put your hope in other things. He knows how you constantly seek joy in other things. Yet he would come after you. He would step down and become Emmanuel. And he's not stopped being Emmanuel. He's very much with us and his promise is being kept for us. And he knows our inability to save ourselves, and so he has become Jesus, our salvation. He has become everything we need him to be. Another familiar passage, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God wants to save us. God wants to save us from the sin that would destroy us. God wants to give us a joy that satisfies. He wants to show us the weight of sin has been lifted. In fact, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 1 Corinthians 5, 21. And though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He, he being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is humiliating. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Jesus, though he came as a baby, though he came to empathize and to sympathize, to know us well, has been exalted now. And he is Lord of all, and no man can deny his, his lordship. Though as a baby, you could say with skepticism, there's no way. There's no man that can resist this confession. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow to this king. And that's a promise yet to be fulfilled. Because it will one day... Be completed. The gospel is the story of already done. He's already here. It's already finished, but it's not yet restored. There's still work to be done. 
There's still more to this promise. There's still more to understand what God is unfolding before us. Just like the people of the Old Testament didn't understand this Jesus that would come, we are still left without some understanding. Why are we still here? What's going on exactly? The sanctifying process we're all experiencing, it's miserable sometimes. The work that's still to be done, the waiting for more and more to be saved, to know the truth that we believe. And Jesus is faithful, just as he's been faithful to come the first time, to come again, to bring us home, to bring complete and total restoration. And that is our ultimate hope, that we would hope in Jesus, who's already done the work, he's not yet done doing the work, and will one day finish this work. And there's great joys there. There's joy here. There's joy to be experienced in life here. Christmas brings joy, but nothing is ultimate here. It's all temporary high. It will leave you empty. You'll be longing for more. The present you open on Christmas, it's going to disappoint. It, it might disappoint like immediately. Like, why did you buy me this? Like, you know me, right? I, why would I like this? Or it's going to disappoint eventually. Like the, a better technology is going to come out. You're going to wish you had the new one. Or it's going to break. It's going to fail you in some way. It always does. There's nothing here that can satisfy you. There's nothing here that brings a lasting joy. And so God has given us this promise. He's given us this hope for joy that truly satisfies. It's Jesus. And there's a lot of unfolding, a lot of unpacking to what exactly that means. But we know it to be true and we know it to be faithful. So church, don't put your hope in finding joy in whatever's underneath that pine tree in your living room. It's not going to be there. Celebrate the Christmas season. Celebrate Jesus. Enjoy good gifts. Enjoy giving good gifts. But make Christ ultimate. Put your hope in Jesus. See that Jesus is God's salvation. See that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And see that He brings joy and freedom from the anxieties of buying the perfect gift. Freedom from the worry of not getting the right gift. Freedom from whatever it is that drains you of energy. There's peace there. There's joy there. There's hope there. It's all about Jesus. And that's the point of Advent. That we're waiting the coming of all of this. So let's pray and let's worship this Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for being the faithful God. We know that you are. For being Emmanuel. Make, make true to us that claim. Make true to us the fulfillment of that promise. That we would know you and your sweet salvation. That we would sing praises of salvation. For those in here who have been saved since they were able to talk. God, renew us this morning. Renew us. Renew in us this joy of salvation. And for those who are still far from you, God, save them. Let them know how sweet the name of Jesus is when it's the name of the Savior. God, let them taste and see that you are good. And that we would praise you with one voice as your church, knowing this salvation with great joy. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for coming. Whether or not you were born uh, at, on Christmas Day, whether or not you were born when we think you were born, doesn't matter. What matters is that you were born to bring hope of true joy, of true salvation. And so we, 
We celebrate that this morning. We celebrate that this Christmas season. We praise you for being our God. In Jesus' name, amen.